All right, everyone, our first scripture reading today is Psalm 85. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth, and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give, you what, it, give what is good, and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. The second passage comes from Romans 8, verses 18 to 21. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in, er in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of, those, of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks, Erica, for reading. You know, it can be downright depressing to look at all of our headlines, especially this past week. Images of heat waves all over the world, and drought and coastal flooding, and this global food crisis that I learned about because Ukraine produces like so much of the world's wheat and corn. This, the Russia-Ukraine conflict has exacerbated the, some of these challenges. The scientists are warning us about global temperature rise and this loss of biodiversity, and it all seems to go unheeded. It feels like this collapse of our natural world is past the point of no return. Now, some of us might feel like it's just the media who's trying to get you know, clickbait and get our views so that they get more uh, views on their websites, or maybe it's just green technology companies stoking fear so that we might go and buy their products. And others of us might just say, man, this is terrible. My, my daughter says it to us. You, you guys are destroying my world and our future. Most of us, I think, just feel overwhelmed, right? You're saying, like, you want me to drive less? You want me to eat less meat? You want me to use less air conditioning? Let's see how that goes today. Let's turn off the AC right now. How are we going to survive? A climate-conscious lifestyle seems like it's a luxury for the privileged. Maybe you're like me and you're wondering if life really was better years ago, back in the good old days. I remember when I was eight years old, 
Uh, I would ride, around the, my, ride my bikes around the neighborhood with my friend, and we'd go to this local school. And then between the school and the neighboring golf course, there was a ditch, and we would collect tadpoles. And over the summer, we would let them grow in our bucket and turn into frogs. I don't know, and, but we only did that one year, because the, year, the years after that, the ditch dried up. There are no more tadpoles to be found. I, I, I'm struck by several things about that story. One is that, you know, that we could actually catch fish and tadpoles in the city. This wasn't like, we didn't, I didn't grow up in an urban area, I mean a rural area, countryside. It was like in the middle of the city, in a residential neighborhood. And secondly, what surprised me is that my parents, our parents, would let us ride around as eight-year-olds in the neighborhood alone, finding all these adventures, and raise tadpoles in our backyard, because the one day they got tipped over and all these frogs escaped. We all have these anecdotal memories of life before. Life before climate change was a thing, life before child predators were a thing, or at least that we were aware of and we were supposed to be scared of them. A life and a lifestyle before that we want to restore. But here's a question, how far back do we go to find that comfort? What kind of life are we looking to have restored for us? You know, our soothing Psalms for the Soul message series this summer brings us to Psalm 85 today. It's a Psalm of Israel's longing for restoration. Like we had a time when they had just, uh, are just concluding their time of exile in Babylon, and they're looking forward to returning back to their promised land. You know, stories of God's faithfulness had been passed from one generation to another, and they would be anticipating this time of returning to the promised land, back hopefully to the temple where God's glorious presence might once again be in their midst. And as we walk through the psalm today, we find that the psalmist expresses a longing, a longing for restoration. And what is ultimately being restored is very different from what they thought. In their and in our longings, as we sung about in our, and as we expressed in the call to worship, we find that maybe there's three movements here revealed in the psalm. There's a remembering, there's a request, and there's a reorientation. Remember, request, and reorient. And this perhaps framework isn't just a framework for restoration, uh, a prayer for restoration, but perhaps our prayer life in general. Remember, request, and reorient. You know, the psalmist opens recalling a time when they sensed God's blessing and presence with them. The first half of the psalm is all in the past tense. It looks back to this time when they remembered God's favor with Israel. And we see the word restore used twice in, the English, in this translation in English, in verse 1 and in verse 4. So, you, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. In verse 4, restore us again, God our Savior. You know, there's a longing for restoration here, and it involves remembering. We do it all the time, right? Memories. As Julie and I are seeing our kids kind of begin stepping out of the home, we remember, we go through our photos, you know, and say, oh, we remember all these earlier days of their childhood. When we look at changes in our neighborhood, in our communities, we think back, hmm, life is a little bit different than when I lived here. We often fondly remember a different time. We remember different relationships that have been able to celebrate together. As we celebrate and remember Byron and Kristen, list later in the service. We recall all the ways that we have experienced God's blessing together in this community. 
over the many 30 plus years that they've been together with us here at WCF. We remember God's goodness. And here we learn from the psalmist that the God's restorative work begins with proper remembering. In particular, it's remembering God's goodness in the past. You know, psychological studies tell us that people tend to remember good things more than they remember the bad things in their lives. It's actually a term called fading effect bias. Studies show that we remember about 60% of the good things in our lives and we remember 40% of the bad things. But remembering God's goodness is more than just a mental exercise to help us, you know, cope and to soothe our souls. It's a prayer asking for God to act once again because we remember what God has done in the past. Based on God's character, based on God's action in the past. Remembering is saying that we have seen God's faithfulness to us. And this psalm reminds us to not forget that. For the psalmist, there is a longing for a restoration of God's blessing, material blessings. But in these particular verses, there is also another kind of remembering going on. Not just of good things of God's provision, material provision, but the good things of God's forgiveness. The psalmist expresses a longing for a time when God's displeasure towards sin was not so acutely felt. For these returning exiles, they realize that the reason that they were no longer in their land, the reason that they were exiled and taken away, is because they forsook worship of the true and living God. They rebelled against God and chased after their idols. Or perhaps in a more contemporary language, they chose to live on their terms, on their own terms, deciding for themselves what's best for themselves apart from God. The heart of sin. And that has consequences. And God, we see some of those consequences here in verses 3 and verse 8. Where God, uh, the psalmist is asking, you set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. In verse 8, saying, let them not turn to folly. There are consequences that, these are the consequences that modern people don't like to associate with a God of their imagination. Wrath, anger, displeasure. I believe in a God of love, not those things. But those are appropriate responses to the sinfulness of human beings. In fact, we actually perhaps want a God who feels those things because they are right responses to wrong things. But those responses are not the ultimate sentiment of the living God towards human rebellion. They are always motivated by love. We discover something interesting about this human, uh, the, the Hebrew word uh, for restore that's used as restore in verses 1 and 4. It's actually the same Hebrew word translated as turn in verse 3 and in verse 8. And it shows up again as the word again in verse 6. I think it's on the screen. Yeah. The Hebrew word is shuv, and it's a very versatile word, word that is used to describe not only situations being revolutionized, being restored, fortunes being restored, but also to describe God turning from his wrath and humans turning from our rebellion. In other words, shuv is what humans do from their rebellion, and shuv is what God does in response to our humble confession. 
But here the psalmist reminds us that remembering is not just pining for days gone by, but also remembering the past mercies of God. And that's what informs these requests that the psalmist makes in the next verses. You know, at the surface, it seems like this, uh, this psalm is teaching us to present all our requests to God for God's blessings in our lives, which it certainly, we can certainly make a, ground, a case for. There are images of fruitfulness and prosperity that are tied to the land, which for them were the material blessings that they hoped to experience. The land is fruitful. Creation is at rest and it's flourishing. These are the images that we get from the psalms, psalmist's prayer. And these are certainly appropriate requests. They're the kind of requests that we find really easy to do in our lives, right? God, help me in my difficult job situation. I feel like it's, I'm not satisfied with my work. Or God, just give me a job. Or God, heal me. It's been a long time since I haven't had to think about this part of my body not hurting or not bothering me. Or God, I don't know what I'm going to do about my debt or my financial crisis. How am I going to get out of this? God, restore my fortunes. Those are easy to pray. Restore my job satisfaction. Restore my health. Restore my finances. All appropriate. All understandable. But there's another request being made here of the, by the psalmist. Take a look at verse 4 and verse 7. Restore us again, God our Savior. Put away your displeasure toward us. Verse 7, show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. It's all written in the first person plural. The kind of prayer here is not so much an individual, a request for individual restoration, but for a corporate restoration. There is an acknowledgement of Israel's failure to trust and obey God as God's people. And the loss of their land and their exiled situation was the consequence. So the specific request here is a corporate request. It's a request asking God to turn away his anger, to forgive his people corporately, and to revive them, and to renew their hold on the covenant, and to make the land fruitful. This request for God to withhold judgment reminds us of Moses' repentance on behalf of the Israelites in Numbers chapter 14. You see, there the Israelites have been wandering in the desert for 40 years. They've, uh, after they've escaped Egyptian captivity, they're a dis, uh, displaced people group wandering for an entire generation. And they're on the verge of entering into the promised land at that point. But most of them grumbled against God and they grumbled against Moses because they listened to the reports of a, the scouts that had traveled into the promised land and they said, the land's too difficult. There's too many hard things in there. It cannot be taken. Only two people, Caleb and Joshua, came back saying, God has provided this for us. It is good. And how does God respond to their faithlessness? Numbers 14. This is, it begins in ninth, verse 19. This is Moses praying. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of those people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. 
The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. You know, God wants to destroy the Israelites for their lack of faith and rebellion. But Moses acts as a priest, as a mediator, asking God to forgive them, forgive his people of their sin and lack of faith. Moses is leading them in a corporate confession. In our days, the cries for social justice often involve denouncing those who oppress others. Take them out. Hold them to account. And you advocate for change. And that is certainly an appropriate response to injustice. But this psalm offers another depth to our response. It's a different kind of request. This psalm acknowledges the broken things of our world by identifying our corporate sins as a people group. What might some of those corporate sins be for America? Perhaps it's our, our idolatry of power. Idolatry of power particularly expressed in the form of white supremacy where biased legislation comes out and policing and voting rights. Perhaps our idolatry of power expressed in Christian nationalism where a particular vision of America is, for a particular group of people is married with Christian language and imagery. Perhaps one of the sins we can confess is our idolatry of violence in the form of personal, in, in name of personal safety and freedom with gun rights. I shook my head this week as I read in the post that there was a, one Maryland gun shop in the area that had cleared out all of its 9mm guns, handguns, after the Supreme Court removed restrictions on gun ownership just a month ago. Perhaps we can confess our greed as a nation. I recently started watching a TV series called Yellowstone about a wealthy and influential rancher named John Dutton, played by Kevin Costner. And in one scene, he approaches a group of tourists who had stopped their bus and pulled over, and they were standing in the middle of a field watching a grizzly bear forage. And so he intervenes, jumps out of, stops his truck, jumps out, and tells them to get out of the field, get away from the grizzly, because he's first because he's concerned for their safety, but also because they've hopped his fence and they were on his property. And so when they kind of don't really listen to him and they dismiss his warnings, he tells them, this is my property, I own everything from that mountain range over there over to that mountain range over there. To which a tourist replies, saying, no one should own that much land. It should be shared with others. John Dutton replies in an ever-so-American way, this is America. We don't share land here. Our greed. I wonder how God might respond to us if we were to pray, name these corporate sins of America, not just imagining others as being guilty of them, but ourselves as being guilty of them as well, because we are participants and beneficiaries of this society. And perhaps naming these expressions of rebellion against God in America are ways that we can begin experiencing the comfort and blessing of Psalms, like Psalm 85.
You know, like the psalmist, our prayers aren't just to restore America to our vision and to our memory of when America was greater, but to the kind of nation that God has called us to be, to, that seeks the peace and the flourishing for all. The kind of restoration that God desires to do in creation requires a reorientation for us. You know, during the STEM camp this week, the kids were learning about chemical reactions between materials that cause change. Hopefully this picture, okay, you can't identify anyone because I just, I didn't realize that Najari said that she hasn't got all the media releases, so we'll have to cut this if there's any identifying information. But I took this picture on Friday. They learned about solutions and what happens when materials interact with one another. When an acid meets another material, they observed the changes to an egg after it had been placed in a jar of vinegar for several days. And on Friday, I had the opportunity to teach a little short life lesson using the parable of the sower, pointing out how our lives are like raw materials. And there's one of the students filling in, you know, the, the coloring in the pictures, uh, the mural of, of the sower and the seeds. You know, we can all join our lives. If our lives are like raw materials, we can all join our lives with different materials and be placed in different environments. And some of those things can lead to health and growth, but others of those can lead to less than ideal situations. But when we join our lives with Jesus, it results in the best and, and greatest change in our lives that leads towards flourishing and restoration. You know, similarly, this psalm provides multiple images of joining and connecting, particularly in these last few verses. See that love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss. Faithfulness springs from the ground. Righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord gives and the land yields. Everything is meeting. All these images of meeting and joining where the goodness of God meets creation, there is union. There is this tender kiss of love and restoration. And what results is flourishing. You know, the psalmist didn't know it at the time but, and can only describe it in poetic terms. But we see this side, we, on this side of the cross, we see that God's character of faithfulness and righteousness and love and peace all meet in the person and work of Jesus. The life of Jesus is God's kiss of salvation to creation. As we join our lives to Jesus through repentance and through faith, we find that God begins his restorative work in us. And not only that, it's through us that that restorative work is offered to the world. Do you remember earlier we talked about the Hebrew word shuv? The Hebrew word used in the psalm to describe both to restore, but also to turn and repent. We find that it is in Jesus that we see and experience the depth and the breadth of this Hebrew word shuv. It's to Jesus that we turn to from our selfishness, from our inwardness, and from our self-determination. And it's from Jesus that we experience restoration in all the areas of our lives where sin distorts the goodness of God in us and in creation. Jesus offers healing and restoration. But even more 
this psalm is a corporate psalm. We cannot ignore this corporate nature of sin evidenced in our world that is presented here as being restored in earthy, organic fashion. The language of creation's flourishing is evidenced in this psalm. See, salvation's kiss is not just for us as individuals to experience, but for all of creation, for 